You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm Colin Smothers, your host and executive director of CBMW. This episode of Danvers Audio features a sermon from CBMW's newest council member, Clint Presley. Clint serves as senior pastor of Hickory Grove Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. His sermon text is Genesis 2, 18-25, and the sermon title is Marriage, a Creation Gift. All right, Genesis chapter 2. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18 and uh, read down to verse 25. There you find the creation of woman and the very first marriage. So this is a really, really good passage. Wouldn't you agree, Aaron? Date your wife for life. Right, okay. (laughs) Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18, read down to verse 25. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman, because she was taken out of the man. Then here's the commentary. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Father, I pray that you would take the reading of your word by your spirit, apply it to our hearts, that we might live this day for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> God in his goodness knew just where we would be. He knew what would be happening in our lives, in the life of this church, what Steve would have to stand up and say, what we would be praying for. God knows what would be going on. Knew that it would be Disciple Now weekend. God knew that we would be at this point right here together. By his goodness and through his providence, he has landed us right here in this beautiful text. Here is a beautiful passage that describes for us the creation of woman and the very first marriage. Here is a union, a bringing together, conceived by the divine, completed in the garden, and held up for us As an example, in fact, the Apostle Paul will reach all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 in order to write Ephesians chapter 5. 
Before Adam ever held Eve in his arms, she already existed in the mind of God. And this morning, as we look at this passage, here we see the, the loving creation of the first bride. She's created for the very first groom. This morning, we watch as, as God, the great creator, fashions Eve, who is the mother of all living, brings her to the lonely man named Adam. This glorious union performed in the garden takes place in chapter 2 before sin creeps in. Genesis chapter 3, there's the fall. Sin shows up in chapter 3. But in chapter 2, we're still, we're still living in paradise. Genesis chapter 2 then, it gives us, from verse 18 down to verse 25, that gives us a picture of what a God-honoring marriage can look like. And so for the next few moments we have together, what I want to do is what we do on Sunday mornings, read the passage, and let's just pull some things out. Let's draw out some simple traits of a good marriage and do it from this beautiful passage. Here's what we know from reading this. We know that, we know that a good marriage honors the Lord. Good marriage honors the Lord. And this morning, I want to pull out two or three or four or five or six. We'll see how it goes. Simple traits of what a good God-honoring marriage looks like. Let's start at the simple place. Here's the first one, number one. In a good God-honoring marriage, number one, Jesus, Jesus is Lord of the home. Now, to get this point from the text, what you have to do is you, you have to zoom out. A lot of times when we're doing expositional preaching, we zoom in on a word, and we'll look at a word very closely, pull it apart, find out its meaning, its semantic domain, see where it's referenced. But at this point, what I want to do is look at this passage and pull out a little bit and look at it as a whole. This passage from verse 18 down to verse 25 describes the very first Union, And so what I want you to see is that behind every action that goes on in Genesis 2 is this divine initiative. It, it, it's God's hand moving the process along. Let me show you what I mean. You'll see it in verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22. I'll, I'll read just the short phrases from each verse. In verse 18, the Lord God said, in verse 19, the Lord God formed. In verse 21, the Lord God caused. In verse 22, the Lord God made. So what you have there in a very quick succession, verse 18 down to verse 25, is the Lord God said, the Lord God formed, the Lord God caused, the Lord God made. And when you read the entire account together, you notice that the centerpiece of a marriage between Adam and Eve, the centerpiece is not the woman, it's not the man, the centerpiece is the Lord God. He is the one bringing Adam and Eve together. God does it. I mean, isn't that what... Since the Bible is a unit, we know that it's 66 books with all kinds of stories and different authors, but it's solidly together. There's one story that runs through it. And the Bible teaches in, verse, in Psalm 127, verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
You know what this speaks to? This speaks to us that are believers. For those of you that are sitting here that you already have given your life to Christ, this speaks to you as a believer. If Christ is not Lord of your life and Lord of your home, then you flirt with disaster. But that's not the only people it speaks to, those that are married. It speaks to those that will one day be married. I'm very thankful that students are all sitting here listening to this together today. Try to listen. I know you hadn't slept very long. Try to listen. Why would you ever, why would you ever be romantically involved with anyone that is not a believer? Let me push on that a little bit further. Because most of us would not be romantically involved with anyone that's an outright atheist. Why would you be romantically involved with someone that claims to be a Christian, but he doesn't live like one? And by the way, I'm saying he because I don't want to pick on girls, so he. He doesn't live like one. Someone that claims to be a Christian but shows no evidence. Now, here's a good litmus test. If he doesn't like to go to church and he doesn't like to read the Bible and he doesn't like to sing to the Lord and he doesn't like to pray, guess what? He is not a Christian. If he he claims to be a Christian and doesn't live like one, one day when he claims to be a husband, guess what? He won't live like. Now, this passage not only makes us uh, think about if you're single and thinking about the future, this passage, if, if you're married, should make us look inward. Inward, inside. Look, the, the, the bad news you heard out of Steve today that we're praying for, that, that shouldn't make you stand in point. That should make you look inside. That, that if Jesus Christ is going to be Lord of your home, he has to first be Lord of your life. Now, what does that mean? Can we... What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be Lord of my life? Are there some irreducible minimums? Are the things we can can boil it down to one or two things? I'll give you just two. There are probably more, but let me give you this two. For Christ to be Lord of your life, number one, you've got to understand the gospel. Understand the gospel. When I say understand the gospel, you understand that God is holy beyond anything you can conceive, and you are sinful much more sinful than you think you are. And that separation is greater than you can cross. Jesus Christ lived perfectly, died sacrificially on a cross, taking the wrath of God away, which leaves the love of God remaining, so that when you turn and look, when you believe, when you believe that Jesus died for your sins, God raised him from the dead, the Bible teaches you'll be saved. Now, you need to have an understanding of that. Now, that's one thing, but that one thing then boils over into evidence. Here's the second thing. There there must be, in my estimation, a, a pursuit of holiness. A desire to be different, to be, to be walking, to be changed, a, a real hatred of sin, a real love of God. To pursue holiness. Look, let me ask you this. If, if you don't desire holiness, if you don't desire holiness, how can you know if you're a Christian or not? Because somebody wrote it down somewhere? That's not going to help you. God calls us 
individually and corporately, when we come together to make sure that whether you're a single or someone married, that Christ is Lord of your home. Let me give you something else. Not only is Jesus Lord in the home of a good marriage, here's the second point, number two, second trait about a good marriage. Marriage is, a good marriage is about solving problems and not creating problems. Marriage is to solve a problem, not create a problem. Let me show you where I get that. Right there in verse 18. Let's start over reading verse 18 and read that first startling sentence, that phrase in verse 18. The text says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Stop right there. That is astonishing. Verse 18 in chapter 2, that's the very first time you'll ever hear the Lord say, it is not good. After every creative act, God steps back and says, that was good. Sometimes he'll say, that is very good. God speaks creation into existence. Afterward, he looks at it, does an assessment, and he always says, it is good. Seven times in six days of creation, God says, it is good. But now, verse 18, chapter 2, but now for the very first time, God looks at something and says, it is not good. Now, now do you understand the weight of that? Into this perfect goodness, something not good has crept. The skies have birds flying in them. Uh, the sea has fish swimming in it. The land has animals walking across it. But Adam, here, here we have the very first problem. And there was only one remedy for the very first problem. Create a woman. Now, some of you ladies that used to be Pentecostal, you should have said amen at that. <laughs> at, at the dawn of creation, look, think about it now. At the dawn of creation in a perfect and sinless world, there was only one thing that could make the place better. The woman. Thank you. You understand that why, why she was created? By the way, if you, if you struggle with some sort of self-esteem, even in, in the marriage, this should, this should be like ointment to your soul. A woman was created because there was a void. Eve was created to remedy a situation. First time God ever said, it is not good. She was created to change God's assessment to take the divine statement, it is not good, and make it right. If, if you are a wife or you hope to be a wife one day, God created you because the situation of your husband was not good without you. That's another place that you could say, amen. Some of you are like, yeah, you should have seen him before I got a hold of him. If, if you are a wife, this is important to grasp now, if you're a wife, God created you, God created you to solve problems, 
not to make problems. Men, that's a good place for you to say amen. In fact, that was good enough. I'm going to say that again. All right, here it comes. You ready? If you, if you are a wife, God created you to solve problems, not to make problems. There are very few things, if you're a Christian and you live in a marriage and you live at home, you understand this. There are very few things more stressful for a believer to, to live in a home where Jesus is not Lord. It's very difficult to, to live in a home where problems abound. And the truth is, if you, if you dial into that a little further, almost all problems, almost all problems in a marriage at their root are spiritual problems. They, they come out of some problem between you and the Lord. Those problems will start showing up. After this chapter, we get into Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve will fall into sin. That sin will, in, will infect all of humanity. Sin enters the human heart. And because a marriage is the coming together of two foul sinners that have been saved by the grace of God yet retain a sinful nature, because two sinners saved by God's grace are coming together, if that's going to work, then Christ must be Lord that home. And, and we've got to understand that, that marriage is created to solve a problem, not to cause a problem. Let me give you something else to consider. While we're talking about the woman, we might as well stay on this. I mean, I'm just following what the Bible says here, right? So we're just going to—this whole passage is about, is about a woman. So, so here's a third thing to consider. In a good marriage, number three, the, in a good marriage, the wife— is valued tremendously. There's so much here in this passage. I mean, when we look at it now, it's written in such a way that there's some sort of zoological parade going on for Adam, right? I mean, you, you read verse 18, 19, and 20, and there in verse 18 there is the problem, and verse 20 is a problem, but in verse, verse 19, all of these animals are coming by. Adam is showing his dominance by naming the animals, so we're showing that Adam has dominion. But in verse 18 and in verse 20, the problem is described. Let me read these verses for you. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's a good place to circle. Drop down to verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found, circle it, a helper fit for him. Helper. You know, earlier we, we zoomed out to look at the whole passage. Now I'm going to have you zoom in a little closer. Verse 18 and verse 20 is that word helper. Woman was created as a helper. He needs help. Some of you have said that. You were right. He needs an indispensable partner. According to the passage, God would, would create for Adam someone who corresponded to him. Helper, your Bible might say help meet, help mate. That word helper is a strange word. 
The trouble we run into when it comes time to interpret something, we bring all of the baggage of the English language up to the text and try to interpret the word helper through what we know, through all of our colloquialisms and slang and how we use the word helper. And so when you hear the word helper, it sounds a little bit condescending. In fact, when the boys were small and I would go out to wash a car and maybe Mac would come out to help me wash the car at four years old and Connie would say, he's going to be your helper today. And he would come out and he's not any help. He's making it worse. (laughs) But the understanding was that he's going to be somebody that needs you to spend some time with him and show him how to do things. He's going to be your helper. And so we sometimes take that that understanding of the word helper and bring it to bear on the text. And that is the wrong, the absolute wrong way to understand this passage. In God's design, what was missing in the man, the woman, would accomplish. The Bible teaches that the husband is there in a position of authority by order of creation and then as a picture of the gospel in Ephesians 5, you can go look it up later. And there Paul would say that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church, and the wife is to submit herself to the husband as the church does to Christ, thereby painting a picture of the gospel for the world to see. And here in this text, the word helper is not something that's subservient or or less powerful. In fact, if you were to mash on that word a little bit and you study it and you, you start finding it throughout the Old Testament— Most of the time, that word helper is used in the Old Testament to describe how God helps his people. In fact, the verbal form of the word means to save from danger or to deliver from death. One of the best illustrations, I think, is one of those passages that we are familiar with. It's Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. Remember what the psalmist says? He asked the question, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? It's that word. Then he answers it in verse 2. My help, same word, comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, you bring every bit of that, what the Bible says about that word, to this passage and understand now, God says, I'm going to make him a helper. No wonder the writer of Proverbs would say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Or at the end of of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, he, he would ruminate and say, an excellent wife, who can find one? Her worth is far above jewels. Great, great value. The wife has tremendous value. But press on that a little bit further, will you? Uh, I'm going to make a helper, verse 18, verse 20, a helper that is suitable for him, your Bible might say. Mine says a helper fit for him, or yours might say a helper corresponding to him. In other words, I'm going to make just what Adam needs. Now, you'll also notice that there's been no mention of children yet. There's been no mention of her ability to bear children. There's been no mention of of being fruitful and multiply, what you're finding is that the value laden in that woman given to Adam had nothing to do with her ability to bear children, had everything to do with her ability to complete that man. 
had value in and of herself. And the text says down in verse 22 or so, now God has created Eve out of the rib. And notice the language in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. It's the idea of, of, of a father walking bride down and out, giving her away. It's the idea, it's why we have the, the social constraints of marriage ceremonies are not necessarily just to have a big celebration. They are there bringing friends and family and those people we love and know closest to us into one gathering and in front of our social circle standing and saying, we promise to each other, we promise to God, and we live under the pressure of these people holding us accountable. That's why we have ceremonies. And a, and, a, and a father bringing a bride down an aisle, giving away, it, it comes out of Genesis 2 where God brought Eve to Adam. So, so that you as a woman, you should consider yourself as a gift, not a burden. She is to be valued. That's, that's gospel truth, valued tremendously. Let's talk about the men a little bit. What about them? Here's the fourth thing about a healthy and good God-honoring marriage. Fourth trait is that a husband, a husband is to be respected tremendously. Tremendous respect for the husband. You get that from Genesis 1 and 2. You'll notice in the order of creation, God first created man, then created woman, giving us a picture of leadership in the home where man is to provide leadership and protection and provision. Man is to set the tone, point the family to the cross. Paul picks it up. It comes out of Genesis 2, baptizes it, and says Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5 that a husband is to love his wife as Christ does the church, and then a wife is to submit to her husband as the church does, paying tremendous respect to him. That their love for Christ is displayed through your love for your husband. No wonder that the, the writer of, Hebrew, uh, the writer of uh, Proverbs would say that an excellent, an excellent wife is, is the crown of her husband. But, but she who brings him shame, it hurts so. It's like, it's like rottenness in his bones. Let me just talk to you, those that are married women here, you hope to be married one day. If God gives you a Christian man that loves the Lord, and loves you, and by God's goodness you have children, he, he loves the children, give thanks to God and, and, and respect and, and, and honor that husband, and in so doing, you are living out Ephesians 5, the gospel. Look, we have forgotten how wonderful of a virtue it is to have a man who loves God, loves his family loves the church, and does what is right. Because so few of them left in the world. So you got one of those men, you need today give great respect. And in so doing, what you end up doing is painting a picture of the gospel. Let's see if I can, see if I can end it here. I'll give you a fifth, make this the last point. 
God, a God-honoring marriage is marked by loyalty, marked by loyalty. I, uh, you know, I read the whole passage, and uh, the whole passage gets you down to verse 25, and um, verse 25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. For every, a lot of guys here, that's what you heard. Hey, hey, can you get to verse 25, please? I want to hear about the naked and not ashamed part. A lot of the teenage boys, the only word they've heard so far is naked. <laughs> so I'm not going to skip over it. Let, let's take a look at it, though. You have to take 24 and 25 together because verse 24 and 25 are much less about sex and much more about covenant loyalty. Let me show you. Let me show you what it means. Verse 24, therefore, so based on everything you've read so far, therefore, um, it's interesting that a man shall leave his father and mother. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, but they, but they weren't ashamed. Verse Verse 24 and verse 25, those two leaving and cleaving, leaving and holding fast, you know what that points to? It points to a new family, a new covenant. Sometime go and study the word covenant. That's what a marriage is, covenant. It involves a, a leaving one set and holding fast. You know what this is? This is, a, this is a person that is committed. This is a committed faithfulness. This is a committed faithfulness that one person promises to the other that regardless of what the future holds, you face it as one. This is a faithfulness to a person, but this is a faithfulness to God's calling, a promise to God, understanding that a Christian marriage, not just any marriage, a Christian marriage displays Christ and the church. It preaches the gospel. And, and honestly, before you can ever really start working on your marriage, you really got to find yourself and find your way to the cross of Christ. You. You don't look at other people, even at your spouse or prospective spouse. You. Isn't that what the Bible says? To crucify, to crucify the flesh. To put to death, to crucify something is to kill it. To, to be done with anger and, and, and bitterness and resentment and, and unfaithfulness. Because until that is, until that happens in marriage, verse 25 never comes to fruition. Naked, naked, not ashamed. You know what that means? That means you're, 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 you're not masked by any guilt. You're not disordered by lust. You're not hampered by shame. It happens when, when two people individually can say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You see, a God, 
Honoring marriage starts with you and Jesus Christ. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.